So what's the big deal about a clean slate? We all seem to want one of those. And New Year's Day is sort of a self-proclaimed day where we erase the slate, don't we? And we start all over again. We, we make a clean break. But why is it that you and I want a clean slate? I want a clean slate so that I can what? What is it that you hope to accomplish with a clean slate? A clean slate is just that. It's clean. There's nothing on it. And so in a sense, it isn't helpful that way, is it? There's nothing written on it to add to what I think or to change how I think. There's nothing written on it to challenge what I do so that I do different things that I should do. It's blank. A clean slate needs something on it. So does a clean plate. In my house, our plates are white, and I certainly enjoy looking at a sparkling clean plate in front of me, but only so that something delicious, some sort of gustatory delight can be placed upon it. I learned that word this, this week, gustatory. I went to lunch with Nell Evans, and she said we're going to have a gustatory delight. So I thought I would use it in a sentence, because that's what our English teachers always did. Gustatory delight. But listen, God has more for you and for me than just a clean slate or a clean plate. Jesus came to do more than just wash them clean for us. R.C. Sproul reminds us of this. If that's all Jesus intended to do was to clean our slates and wash our plates. And he could have come from heaven on Good Friday, died on the cross, been in the grave, resurrected on Sunday, and gone back to heaven. But that's not what he did. Jesus lived more than 30 years on this earth so that we can be more than clean slate Christians. It's true, it's beautiful. It's soul-soothing and hope-giving that when we confess our sin, our slate is wiped clean. Is that good news? But the goal is bigger than a clean slate. It's better than a clean plate. We're clean for a reason. And that reason is that you and I might live a life of righteous obedience to the glorious will of God. As devoted disciples of Christ, we can and we must write beautiful, Christ-honoring, kingdom-building, love-expressing things on that slate. We must pile high our plates with acts of righteous obedience. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we return to our series in the book of 1 Peter so I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. It's where we left off. And when you found your place in God's Word, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear the Word of God read. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, this is the Word of the Lord. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer, for, suffer, and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word, preserving it for us, teaching us through it, Revealing yourself to us, who you are, and who it is that we ought to be as people made new in Christ. Teach us those things we pray this morning as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The verses that we have read this morning come right in the center of Peter's holy inspired teaching on submission. So there are seven verses on submission that precede these verses. Verses about submitting to human institutions, to governors, to emperors, servants being subject to their masters. Seven verses about submission will follow these verses. Verses about wives submitting to their husbands. And husbands showing honor to their wives. Lord willing, we will look at that next week. And I anticipate a full house for that one. (laughs) You think I won't do it. I'm going to do it. Yet in the center of difficult teaching. Teachings that collide with our wills. Teachings that collide with our culture. Teachings that come from Peter who's going to die at the hands of the emperor that he's just said we should submit to. In the midst of all of it is Christ. He's the central thought of this section, as he must be for you and for me in all of our lives. Christ must be central in all things. As Patrick, the 5th century missionary to Ireland, wrote, in that prayer that's attributed to him. Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ above me, Christ beneath me. And when we look at this ever-present, all-surrounding Christ, we see his obedience. And that's what we are going to fix our attention on this morning in verse 24. So I'll ask you to look once again. At verse 24, we read there that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Listen, this is one of the most comprehensive verses in all of Scripture that puts before us so concisely the complete work of Christ. In that, this verse puts before us the complete obedience of Christ. Again, that's what we're going to consider this morning, the obedience of Christ. 
And that obedience is subsumed in two theological concepts. The passive obedience of Christ and the active obedience of Christ. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at each of these crucial theological truths. So let's begin then with the first one, the passive obedience of Christ. We see this in the first part of verse 24. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now think among Christians, it's safe to say that the passive obedience of Christ is the one that's most familiar to us, and it's the one that gets the most focus. When we think about the passive obedience of Christ, we think about his suffering. The passive obedience of Christ is when he allowed himself to be nailed to the cross. The passive obedience of Christ is when he stayed on the cross and suffered on the cross. The passive obedience of Christ is when he died on the cross. And so we read in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But the passive obedience of Christ is more than just those moments of suffering on the cross. Every day of his life was a day of passive obedience for Christ and that every day was for him a day of trial and suffering. He was constantly exposed to the consequences of sin that he never committed. For over 30 years, he lived every day in a world that was not the way it was supposed to be, not the way that he had created it to be. He lived in a world of rebellion against the Father who sent him. He lived in a world that's in constant decay. Because of sin. And every day he chose to passively endure the trials of this world. He cried over Jerusalem because of the faithlessness of the city. And he wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. So this, along with his suffering and death on the cross, comprised the passive obedience of Christ. And it's through that passive obedience. It's through a lifetime of suffering that Jesus is able to take a full slate of sin and erase everything on it. It's through this kind of suffering that we can hand our dirty, dirty, filthy plate to Jesus. And he washes it and hands it back to us. His passive obedience in his life and in his death is what paid the price for our sins. Is that good news? Are you thankful for what we used to call the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? But we need more than a clean slate or a clean plate. We need to live to righteousness. Look again in verse 24. He bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might live to righteousness. And so not only did Jesus pay the negative 
penalty of our sin, he achieved positive righteousness for us. Righteous is what God is. Righteous means that God always, without failing, perfectly does what is right, what is just, what is fair, what is equitable, always. Moses said it this way, when the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah still lay in the balance, Moses says, shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? And the answer to that question is a resounding what? Yes. And if that yes is not resounding for you, if you are not convinced that God is perfectly righteous, you don't really know the one and only true and living God. And you will therefore write something else on your slate. You will pile something else on your plate, but it won't be the righteousness of God. God is righteous. He's right in all that He does and all that He required. And righteousness is what's required of you and me. It was what was required of Adam and Eve in the garden. Perfect obedience to everything God said to them and required of them, then heaven would be theirs. Righteousness is the requirement. And so Peter says here, we must live to righteousness. Other scripture agree. At the time when Jesus came to John to be baptized by him, and John hesitated, he didn't want to do it. But Jesus said, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Fulfill righteousness. That's the goal. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and his what? Righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we, we might become the righteousness of God. Can you believe it? Philippians 3, 9. Paul wants to be found in Christ. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so this is why the great reformers said that we need more than just forgiveness for breaking God's law. It's not only forgiveness that's required, but perfect obedience to the law of God. That's still the requirement for attaining eternal life. If Christ only removed the guilt of our sin, You and I would have a clean slate. We would have a clean plate. But by our own efforts, then we would still be required to perfectly obey the law of God in order to uh, to attain the reward of perfect obedience, which is heaven. Who could do that? 
I can't do that. And that's why the active obedience of Christ is so important. He attained that righteousness for us. That's why we sing, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless, we stand before the throne. Christ's obedience merits perfect righteousness for us, a righteousness we could never have on our own. Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness because it's not found within us. It's given to us. It's imputed to us by God through faith in Christ. In his book, The Infinite Merit of Christ, The Glory of Christ's Obedience and the Theology of Jonathan Edwards, which is a great book by Dr. Craig Beale, he writes this, Having bound himself to perfectly obey God's rule of righteousness, according to the requirements of the covenant of redemption, Christ bound himself to obey all the laws, as all laws reflect God's one great rule of righteousness. And having voluntarily bound himself to obey all laws, Christ's perfect obedience was thereby meritorious on account of the freeness and perfection of it. Are you following with me? These are such deep truths. Christ voluntarily submitted himself to the law from which he was set apart. That's what enables us to be righteous. He did this for us so that our slate can be more than just a race and our plate can be more than just empty. Beale goes on to quote Jonathan Edwards himself. Christ's righteousness, by which he merited heaven for himself, and all that believe in him, that's you and me if we're people of faith, consists principally in his obedience to the law. For this was Christ's chief work and business in the world. And so it's one thing for us to have our guilt removed, but we also need to be credited with perfect righteousness. I want to quote R.C. Sproul. Sorry for all the, uh, the quotes. I'm not sorry for them. They're great. <laughs> Far better than I could ever Say it. R.C. Sproul says, For if all Jesus did was die for your sins, that would remove all your guilt, and that would leave you sinless in the sight of God, but not righteous. You would be innocent, but not righteous, because you haven't done anything to obey the law of God, which is what righteousness requires. We need more than a clean slate and a clean plate. The slate must have righteousness written on it. And the plate must be full of righteousness, the rightness that God requires of us. Jesus died not just so that you and I could be forgiven, but also so that we might live to righteousness. And this is such good news to us because righteousness is what God requires. Because righteousness is what Jesus tells us that you and I should seek after in His act of obedience is what attains it for us. I have one more quote. And this is from Dr. J. Gresham Machen. He was that famous early 20th century New Testament scholar. 
He taught at Princeton Seminary until the day that that seminary got liberal. And I probably should explain that. Some people don't know what I mean by liberal because they think it's a good word. It just means in the day that that seminary decided that the Holy Scriptures were not inspired by God. The day when they said there was no virgin birth. The day they said there was no physical resurrection of Christ from the dead. The day they decided that Jesus was not divine but merely human. That's what we mean when we say a place has become liberal. Well, Machen would have none of it. So he led a revolt at Princeton Seminary and he went off to found Westminster Theological Seminary and also the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in America. Anyway, this is what Machen preached just a couple of weeks before he died. Those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ are in far more blessed condition than was Adam before he fell. Adam, before he fell, was righteous in the sight of God. But he was still under the possibility of becoming unrighteous. Those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ not only are righteous in the sight of God, but they are beyond the possibility of becoming unrighteous. Is that good news? In their case, our case, the probation is over. It's not over because they stood it successfully. It's not over because they have themselves earned the reward of assured blessedness which God promised on condition of perfect obedience. But it's over. The probation is over because Christ stood it for them. It's over because Christ has merited for them the reward by His perfect obedience to God's law. And so, we have the truth before us in verse 24. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, slates clean, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So what are we going to put on it? Heaven is ours. Listen, heaven is ours. It's a done deal. We're not working for that anymore because we have faith in Christ. He won heaven for us through his perfect and active obedience. But the call to righteousness still goes out. To you and to me. And Peter writes this truth in the middle of a section of difficult teaching. But it's righteous teaching. Teaching that must be obeyed because it comes from God. And so Peter puts before us the passive and the active obedience of Christ. So that we know, so that you and I know that through him, obedience is possible for us. He gives us, Christ does, that clean slate and that clean plate that we need. And then He enables us and He empowers us through His Spirit to live to righteousness. To obey when we think we can't obey. To obey when we don't want to obey. To obey when we forget and we do forget that the judge of all the earth always does what's right. So, the slate's clean. Thank Jesus for his cleansing blood. 
Now, what are you going to write on it? Who are you going to allow to write on it? A righteous God or a godless culture? The choice is yours. Somebody's going to write on your slate. A righteous God or a godless culture? The plate's clean. Thank you, Jesus, for a clean plate. What are you going to put on it? Are you going to heap it and pile it full with the ways of the world or with the ways of God? Righteous acts that he's equipped us to do. Ephesians 2.10 For we, you and I, we, believers in Christ, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus was actively obedient so that we might live to righteousness. Let's use our clean slates to write beautiful, God-honoring, kingdom-building, love-expressing things. Let's pile the plate high with acts of righteous obedience. Jesus obeyed completely so that we could as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, such deep truths for us to comprehend. And yet they are truths conceived by your mind and enacted in time and space by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would help us understand these deep things. To see so clearly what Christ has done for us. Cleansing us. Washing us. Making us clean. Father, help us to be good stewards of that clean slate and the clean plate. Help us to think your righteous thoughts after you as we read them in your word. Help us to do righteous deeds in this world of unrighteousness. And help us to do it in the power of Christ. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If those who are coming or serving the table of the Lord would come forward. And while they come, what a always so beautiful to gather around the table of the Lord because it speaks to us of his passive obedience, his suffering, his death on the cross for you and for me, but it speaks to us a greater hope that this becomes a means of grace whereby the Lord Jesus himself strengthens us to be the people he's called us to be and to do the righteous things that he calls us to do. We can't do it on our own. We have to have the Lord, and so he comes and he feeds us and he strengthens us here at this table. So this table is for everyone here this morning who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this table is for everyone here this morning who prayerfully has this goal. I want to live a life of righteousness before God in this world. This table will help you. So you come with a glad and eager heart and a heart of great 
anticipation for what the Lord will do in you and through you as we come to his table. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask now that you would set aside the elements on this table from their common use as bread and cup. Transform them, Lord, into that means of grace that we know them to be. Use them in ways we don't understand, Lord, to make unrighteous people like we are righteous and holy in your sight. Help us to understand as we come that that is the work of Christ for us and through us. So bless us as we come. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And after he had given thanks for it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for many for the forgiveness of sin. Come now to the table of the Lord.
and the body of Christ given for you. John Andrew, body of Christ given for you. And the blood of Jesus shed for you. Blood of Jesus shed for you. Jesus said, take and eat, this is my body which is given for you. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for many for the forgiveness of sin. For how many of your sins does the blood of Jesus make completely clean? Drink of it, all of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask again that because of Jesus, his complete and perfect obedience, that while we wait for the reward he's earned for us, heaven itself in your presence, that you would strengthen each of us who've been here this morning and worship in your word and around your table. Strengthen us to live lives of righteousness, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand, and we'll be dismissed by singing the doxology. Marty, I think if you'll just give us a note, we'll do it. Lonnie, acapella. for our after Christmas Christmas party go home make some good food make some beautiful desserts practice your skits come back at five o'clock thank you for being here this morning and now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen.
We are de-decorating. We are de-decorating. Any help is appreciated. Any help is appreciated. How could you be so big already? It's not even possible. It's not even possible. Oh, she's so beautiful. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Hey, there it is. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Good to see you, my man. How are you? I know. It's been a miserable, miserable two weeks for us. How are you? How are you? Yes, I yeah. I'm good. I'm about to go over my lines right now. Megan, you know what? Was that okay? You know, everything you've got going on, and you still have time to be creative and do that, and the party tonight, it's just not right. It was Kathy's idea. She was like, I envision a traveler coming in with a hat, you know? So I just ran with it. And let me just say this about you, because a lot of times church people get frozen in fear, like if something's forgotten. I had so many, I forgot all about it. If you had not come, I'd forgotten. And you just, and it, people thought we planned it, like you're interrupting, and I'm like, I just want to shoot myself. Because I'm trying to be cute about the party. I said, Yates, just whatever I do, go along with it. That's all I said to him. <laughs> thank you, Megan. So thank you for keeping your plate with They're the ones who offered the, they dropped off pots and pans that they had a duplicate oh, of. And so Anna so and Kevin are going to go. Oh, thank you. Is Annie here? No, she's not. Just, My mom got them for us. And we just Will you tell us your names again? Sophia. Sophia and, and Ethan. How, did you, how long have you been at Redeemer? Not very long. It's about a month. It's been a little bit long. This is okay. like our sixth time. Okay. North Charleston. Okay. It's like our sixth time. Yeah. They got a great community group in North Charleston. They're doing oh, a, a skit tonight. They've got... All the skits at these parties make fun of me, so oh, yeah. it's worth coming just <laughs> like, yeah, awesome. they make fun yeah, of me. Yeah. That's thank awesome. you. Thank you. Yeah, Good thank you again. Okay, I got it. With her stuff in it. Hold on. Jim, I think this is it here with all of your other stuff that I thought you might want. Yeah, but I have a container. A so this is not it. Yeah, it's a vase. It's a vase. But I it's couldn't find vase. them. It's a gold vase? Kind of tarnish gold. Is it, is it tall? Yeah, well, tall, yeah, tall. Okay, well, I'll find that. Okay. I didn't know if you wanted to keep the uh, pine yeah, cones. Yeah, I'm going to do that, yeah. I'm going to take care of that. Now, do you want those other two oasis out there, those two blocks? Well, I'm not sure. They're yours. Okay, that's mine. Okay, but I need the vase to put on. Let me ask Gray, because they took those things down to decorate oh. for Christmas. Oh. Let me see. Sweetie pie. Come with me, I gotta find Gray. It's great. Oh.
later. Okay.